0: Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is—it is, it is uh, so much science on your radio that we can barely stand it. Um, my name is Chris, and what can I say? It's another—it's another week, another another day, another report of another hint of life on Mars. Uh, not actually life on Mars, just hints that there could be or could have been life on Mars. Are we excited?
1: I was quite excited when I heard that news. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've been talking about water on Mars, water on Mars, water on Mars, water on Mars, water yeah. on Mars. And now there's something else.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's um, organic molecules. That's very exciting. Yeah. Not as exciting as it sounds, Oh, I come on.
2: Spoiler alert. No, I mean,
0: it's not a spoiler alert because, I mean, let's be honest here. Organic molecules... Mean something like they a chemistry thing. They mean it's a molecule containing carbon, basically. Yeah, it and it, it, does, it doesn't. It doesn't mean it is, it's from it is an exciting. organic. But I think people hear organic source. molecules and they think, oh, you know, it's like pesticide-free produce from down at the local organic store, and it's not necessarily that. <laughs> Mars is
1: completely organic at this stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also completely populated by robots. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> but no, look, it, it is exciting. It is exciting, and we'll talk about what it means and what it is, and yeah, and. Is there life on Mars? Well, we'll keep asking that same perennial question. Claire, what have you got for us?
2: Well, I have two special guests in the studio talking to us um, today, Pauline and Jack from Campfires and Science, um, which is a citizen science project where you get all the people you can who enjoy camping and um, hearing about science um, and take them into the bush, light a campfire, and have a good old yarn about science while also doing some science. Um, and the greatest thing is that so they've they've, they've done these um, these campfires and science uh, programs, projects all around Victoria. And um, they've seen all sorts of amazing things. They've seen leadbeaters possums and um, fuscigallies. Is that am I saying that correctly? Close enough. Yeah. Um, and but also had talks from different scientists Um, and anyway they've they've got a crowdfunding campaign at the moment Um, and the victorian government is matching every dollar that they crowdfund so we're going to talk a little bit about the crowdfunding campaign and a bit about how people can become involved
0: very nice Uh, most campfire science i've been involved in has been will this thing burn Uh, nice to hear some people doing something a bit different on with the show Yes, it is, uh, it is life on Mars time. And, and what we're talking about is the recent news reports of the Curiosity Rover finding traces of organic chemicals on Mars. Then we can look at what that means. Um, Stu, can you tell us what are organic chemicals?
1: In chemistry, it's pretty much a chemical that has carbon in it. That's the simple explanation.
0: Right, so this is, this is, I guess, why I think when we're saying organic chemicals, we're saying, does it actually mean life? It doesn't necessarily mean that it's life, is it?
1: No, and the thing is, life on Earth is carbon-based. Carbon is the unit of currency of life on Earth. All of the energy is transferred back and forth between life forms using carbon as that unit. So therefore, the carbon base of life on Earth means that, yes, organic chemicals are often found in relation to living things who are, you know, uh, consuming carbon as an energy source
0: so we're saying it is still promising well let us look at exactly what this was uh now okay so these were organic chemicals they were found in mudstone this is in the bed of an ancient lake uh it's on the floor of the gale crater g-a-l-e crater near the um, a mountain called aeolius mons it's about five kilometers tall apparently things are big on mars it wow seems, yeah
1: well there's no ocean to hide how you know, that they might be sticking up from the ocean floor or something. But, it yeah. was a lake. Yeah, well. So so was the lake there before the crater was there or is the crater there oh, and there's a lake in the bottom
0: of it? Well this lake apparently has been dry for about three billion years, so I don't know, you do the maths. Hmm. Um so the Curiosity Rover used a drill to go down a few centimetres beneath the surface of the of the, the Martian surface and extracted some mudstone. I oven baked it to temperatures of between about 600 and 800 degrees Celsius. Um, this is like to get rid of certain contaminants and to evaporate them away. And they fed the fumes from that to a mass spectrometer to identify what molecules were there.
2: Does the Mars rover also have a mass spectrometer on board? Yes. Oh, it's the best, isn't it? It has a lot of
0: things on board. It doesn't have everything on board. but It's got, it has
1: a- it's got more stuff than your average
0: car. It does.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> it's what got all they- the upgrades
0: what they found uh, on Earth, what they found would be known as kerogen. And that is like, it's kind of an organic substance. You compressed, broken down remains of algae and other life forms that's found in sedimentary rocks. Um, So it's often, yeah, on Earth it's produced by life forms, by squished life forms. But it can be produced by geological origins as well. Because, you know, Mars, there is possible other sources of of these kind of chemicals. It is bombarded by... um, Meteorites, many of them contain organic molecules. We've since found out. Yeah. Also, um, there is a lot of carbon dioxide in the Martian atmosphere, and volcanic activity could have reacted with the carbon dioxide to produce these chemicals. So there are geological ways that it could be produced. And yeah.
1: So they're, they're just they're chemicals that are produced by chemical reactions on Earth. Those chemical reactions take place in living things. Yeah. But there are other ways they can occur as well. Yeah, yeah, and yep. and as you say, meteorites, they've actually found organic chemicals in meteorites and in samples from, you know, the tail of comets and things like that. They've found mm. things like formaldehyde, which is a very common apparently very common organic chemical in space, but it doesn't mean there was ever any life where this formaldehydes come from. It just happens to be there.
0: Well, these ones in particular, they were actually uh, sulfur-containing organic molecules. So one of them was um, theophene. That's kind of of a ring that has uh, four carbon atoms and one sulfur atom. So it's not very complicated. But I guess the other side of this is that if you have these molecules being created by natural non-life means, I mean, life has to come from somewhere and, you know, you've got the makings of life then that's kind of the precursor to actually having something alive. So it's not, you know, it still isn't promising from that point of view. But Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah exactly right. There's got to be something for the life to assemble into yeah. living cells for it to be alive. Yeah. So, yeah, it's got to come, yeah, it's got to start somewhere.
0: And this isn't the only carbon-containing molecules um, noticed on Mars. There is methane... In the atmosphere, um, yeah, the methane in the atmosphere that um, fluctuates with the seasons. It goes up and down with the seasons. Again, it could be geological processes, you know, during the, due to temperature, or it could be microbes that um, vary uh, their populations by the seasons as well. Um, so, look, there is the the work is still ongoing. Um, Curiosity not only has a mass spectrometer, it has some other instruments on board. Um, it has this instrument that has nine small cups with a solvent this is designed to um, free release some organic compounds in in rock um, so you don't have to break the rock apart you can just like dissolve them with this solvent um, and yeah so that's that's to be used. Um, they've got a target for that um, so they're going to like drill up some more mudstone hopefully they, they fix their drill that needed to do this they're going to fix it so they can then use their cup and hopefully find out some verify some uh, organic molecules. Um, The real test will be probably until they have a device that's more designed to to detect life, possibly may be involved in something that takes a sample and sends it back to Earth. Uh, There are plans to do this. There is another rover going in 2020, the Mars 2020 rover, that will um, take uh, samples and prepare them for transport back to Earth. So it might be a while before we get absolute confirmation of life on Mars, but um, yeah, the hints are getting there. It's getting quite interesting.
2: Now, um, for those people who are on Twitter, um, you might follow the Mars Rover on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is also a counter Twitter account called uh, Sarcastic Rover. I don't know if you guys have... Uh... I have seen that one, yeah. <laughs> and when this was announced, when this um, these organic molecules were announced, uh, announced, Sarcastic Rover said, Science announcement, I have found evidence that indicates there is a chance that I might one day find other evidence that life could have perhaps existed on Mars. Maybe that's called science, people. That is quite
0: sarcastic. Look, well, sarcastic <laughs> rover, look, come this is still a positive thing. The like, we've shown that organic material can survive for billions of years underneath the surface of Mars. So hang on, if there is life there or if there ever was life there, we're going to find it eventually. So yeah, just chill your, chill your jets, sarcastic rover.
2: Traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in Science. Camping and science. I love everything about these two things. And my guests this week on Lost in Science do too. So much so, they have developed a citizen science program called Campfires and Science to get people doing them at the same time. Pauline and Jack, welcome to Lost in Science.
3: Thank you very much.
2: Hi, hello. Hello. Now, can you tell us what Campfires and Science exactly is
3: yeah well it's a great question i mean you might be able to detect from from my accent that i'm not from australia and i I came here a few years ago and my my wife to be is australian and i've discovered this uh love of the outdoors here and i got invited out to the forest to sort of uh, see some some work that some people are doing there and uh, i said well what are you doing and they said oh we're trying to find some critically endangered species uh, living around here I said, "Well, why is that?" They said, "Well, because they're they're logging all the trees. They're cutting down uh, old growth the trees that sort of two, three hundred years old. The second tallest tree on earth, or the tallest flowering tree."
2: The mountain ash. Is this the mountain ash? That's right, the Victorian yeah. mountain ash, yep. which
3: is an absolutely amazing tree. And uh, these people I met were basically taking thermal imaging cameras. They were a group of volunteers who were, you know, very dedicated, but kind of sleeping in their cars, going out at three in the morning to wow. sort of spot critically endangered. Species with thermal imaging cameras. So, for example, the, the lead beater possum, there's, they think there's about 1,500 left on Earth. And they're logging in the areas where they live. So, these people were trying to show the state government where these possums were so that the state government could make an informed decision about where not to log. I thought this was great. And I said, So, how often do you do this? And blah, blah, blah. Because I said, I think I know quite a few people who might be interested in this. I said, do you ever sort of have a campfire as oh, well? Because it's the middle of winter, it's quite cold and we're in a <laughs> car park at three in the morning. Yes. And so I said, well, look, I'll just organise a campfire. I'll bring the people. You guys bring the thermal imaging cameras and, and, of course, the expertise. And we'll take it from there. Now, that was about a year and a half ago. We, I decided to set up a Facebook group with some friends, Campfires and Science, and since that time, about a year and a half ago, we've, we've got nearly a thousand people in the group now. We've run about 10 different events and probably taken sort of two, three hundred people into the forest to, to come and do science. Uh, yeah.
2: So these are everyday, ordinary people, citizens who aren't necessarily trained in ecological experimentation or anything, going in and actually doing science.
3: That's right. I mean, I mean, first of all, I do like the term citizen science. I think it's good, but I, I have to object because I, I am a permanent resident. So uh, you know, but it's not quite as catchy, permanent resident <laughs> science. So, uh, so uh, yeah. But, but the public members of the public, and I think the main thing I wanted to do with a campfire was actually get back to the to the roots that we all have. You know, I think all cultures around the world, wherever you've come from, we've we've evolved around fires. We've all got this shared collective history of, of sharing stories around fires and, and storytelling. And that's how we told stories and shared science in the past. And of course, you know, the, the indigenous culture in Australia, the longest continual human civilization on earth has a huge tradition of that too. And I think just trying to unite those different worlds of, of science and, and really trying to challenge the word science as, as being seen as exclusive and actually taking it back to its root, which is knowledge. Mm. And how do you share that knowledge? And, and actually, a PowerPoint lecture or uh, you know, something on, an L, uh, on, a, on a computer screen, that's one way of sharing. But I think more and more people switch off from that. And when you get them around a campfire, something quite amazing happens. People enter this kind of trance. And it's like sort- this
2: meditative state, isn't it, when you, when you um, buy a campfire. Everyone's focused on the same point exactly the the fire yeah And,
3: and focus is of course the latin word for hearth where we get hearth from as well so there's all these linguistic links to the fire being a focus and um and i think what you know, when I first moved to Australia, I bought a, a chimney before I bought a TV because I, I genuinely would rather watch a fire for for a long time as opposed to uh, most Australian television, or well, in fact any. So yeah, that's a bit of a dig there, but uh, sorry, Paul. I, you think, were I say. think what
4: um, Campfires and Science does really well has, has done has done since the beginning is to kind of match the people that have the expertise and the people who have an interest and a passion. So you know, you have the people who are really knowledgeable about you know, flora and fauna that are are in the forests and they're kind of uh, empowering people to come along and help kind of protect and preserve and document them and do it in a kind of a genuinely enjoyable way so that you can, you know, go out. It just kind of takes you know, just a trip to the forest is the next level. So lots of people can enjoy just wandering into nature and just looking around. And it's that step from looking and being like, I wonder what that tree is, to like not you know, knowing what it is, finding out something amazing about it, and then taking a step to um, protect and preserve it for, you know, for future generations.
2: That's always been my dream. When I go bushwalking, I'm always like, oh, where's the where's the geologist so they can explain this landscape to me or like where's the entomologist so they can tell me what like why there are so many termites flying around right now like it's always the dream that you've got an expert on hand to be able to introduce you you know to the science around you while you're walking in nature so it's exactly yeah
4: and and as Dyke said um it's you know about kind of reclaiming science and you know it's very much kind of aimed at anybody who wants to get involved anyone who's passionate not just people who are prepared to sleep in their car at 2am in the (laughs) middle of winter they're welcome to come along too but just to to make science kind of accessible to everyone you know you don't need to have a phd to come along to get involved you know but if you do have a phd and you want to tell us about (laughs) your science then brilliant we can find you a, a passionate audience
3: that's right and and i think that inclusive being inclusive is the main thing we're trying to do. And that word that word, expert is really important as well. And I'm very careful to not use the word scientist because it's kind of what was coined in 1833 by an English reverend before that. They were called natural philosophers. And what we've lost in the word scientist is the the love of wisdom, philosophos. And I think just trying to bring that wisdom back with the knowledge and that passion that, that Pauline spoke about. So when we get these experts we're not just saying this is the expert and they're just giving the answers. They're saying, this is what I know. And more importantly, this is how I learned what I know. And I'm gonna teach you how to find that out for yourself or teach people how to ask the questions themselves. We're not It's not just about here's the answers. We're teaching the scientific method, how to ask a question, because that's all you can teach people. So doing that around a campfire and bringing in all the different, you know. And it's not just ecological or environmental. We had someone from CSIRO talking about x-ray crystallography the other week, which was great. And uh, you know, she turned out to be a passionate data visualization expert and subsequently took all this public domain data and mapped it in really useful ways no one had ever done before. So it's, it's making all the, these connections. But we are very aware that what we're doing is out in the forest a two hour drive out and isn't as inclusive as it could be for some people so what we're hoping to do is develop more metropolitan events so there's parts of Melbourne where you can have a campfire that you can get to on public transport so we're hoping to run events like that but we've sort of reached the point where there's only so much we can do on a a volunteer basis so we've uh, had a bit of help from the Victorian state government to run a crowdfunding campaign and through that they're matching any donations that we get and so what we hope to use with that money is to make these events more inclusive so you know working with schools local communities people of all ages and saying what is it you want to research what are your local research priorities and how can we empower you to do that and uh, i can give some examples of that please well a really exciting project we're, we're planning at the moment is one where we're looking at environmental dna so for anyone who doesn't know what environmental dna is uh it's the the DNA that we kind of all shed. So if if you went for a swim in a swimming pool and then you took a, cu- a cup of water out of that, you could sort of say, "Oh, there's been there's been a Jack in here, but there hasn't been a Pauline or a Claire." You know, uh, you will shed skin cells, etc. And so what we can now do, and I say we uh, in the sense of uh, humanity, uh, because I can't do it, but I know people who can. And the basic method is you can take a syringe of water from from any sort of river system, put it through a filter, they can put it into a a sequencer, and they can see which species are living there. So they, Melbourne Water, for example, have been doing this with platypus uh, for a number of years and have lots of really good data on that. But of course, this isn't cheap or free we're hoping to actually train members of the public to do this environmental DNA sampling and uh, but not only that to choose which species they want to look for and all the data we generate will be shared in the public domain it will be public access data so that anyone can also get involved in analyzing and interpreting it so just trying to involve people in every stage of that research cycle
2: you are listening to lost in science and our guests today are jack and pauline from the citizen science program campfires and science Um, Now I hear people all over the country asking, how can I get involved in this? I like camping. I like science. I like collecting environmental DNA, so long as it's not my own, <laughs> in a swimming pool.
3: That was probably a fairly <laughs> creepy example that I gave. I might, um, I might rephrase that as if if a platypus has just had a swim in a river, uh, it's so probably that, a slightly safer example. That's
2: but. a lot more quaint. But um, yeah, how, how can people get involved in this, Jack?
3: Great question. Well, if you're listening to this and thinking, well, you know, this is the kind of thing I'd like to get involved in. Basically, any uh, please reach out. We need support in every area. We are running events regularly, so if you want to come around the campfire, join in, or if you want to speak around the campfire, get in touch, and I'll list all the ways you can get in touch at the end. If you want to help us run our crowdfunding campaign, we we really need some volunteers to help with that. You know, even if it's just sharing, but also helping us. Um, refine our messaging and if you want to get more involved in the projects we're actually doing we're involving people in designing and choosing what areas we should research as well so do you have a species you think we should be looking for in our environmental DNA survey well then get involved and we're using a a not-for-profit open source discussion platform called Lumio to sort of crowdsource ideas and collectively make decisions so you can get involved with that And of course, if you can't give your time or expertise, but you have some fiat currency or cryptocurrency, we uh, will also be uh, gratefully and gladly accepting that to make our work as inclusive as possible.
4: Regular Australian dollars, freely accepted, not just (laughs) cryptocurrency. cryptocurrency.
3: Magic beans, (laughs) also good. Um, There's
4: just so many ways that you can get involved, even if it's just... Yeah, kind of following us on Facebook or Twitter or sharing our campaign. Donations are definitely welcome. No. Um, but also suggestions for where we can do our research or, or just coming along and seeing a, what a Campfires and Science event looks like for yourself.
2: So, for anyone who might have their phone out at the moment who might be wanting to follow you, that would be Campfires and Science on, yep. Facebook. on Facebook. So, you can and put Campfires
3: and in Science into Facebook and Twitter. Uh, the website we have is scienceforall.world. So, yeah, that's one of those new domains. Or you can email us at info at world, And uh, we're also on Instagram. And just to say as well, if you're listening outside of Victoria or, in fact, anywhere on planet Earth, although we've we've started in Victoria, uh, we're in discussions with the New South Wales government to set up campfires and science there. And the way we want to run this is a sustainable scalable way so we can actually train people all around the country and eventually the world to run these kind of events. So if you're sat here thinking, I'd love to run this in my neck of the woods, get in touch. And we'd love to talk to you about how we can take that onto the next step.
2: What is the best moment that you've had around the campfire talking science?
3: Certainly. I mean, we've had nights where we've gone out and in the same night seen lead beads of possums, greater gliders, all these amazing animals that are critically endangered, got back to the campfire had talks from experts on proteins, X-ray crystallography, but at the same time been 400 metres away from a, a planned burn where they've dropped something similar to napalm from helicopters to start fires in areas that have just been logged because that's the cheapest, not the most scientifically valid way of clearfilling an area. So we've had sort of very bittersweet moments where we've all been sharing this beautiful knowledge around the campfire and 400 metres away... We've we've had a really different kind of knowledge, which is actually this is what is happening. Uh, you know, with permission of of the state government and probably against some scientific evidence, they're burning huge amounts of the forest and destroying soil bacteria, all the other things there. And we were just sat four hundred meters away, having our campfire and science event, and nearly had to evacuate it. We had to sort of make that call: is is this safe? Is it not? Wow. And and although that doesn't probably sound like a happy memory what that did for everyone around that campfire, I think, was, was bringing a different kind of knowledge that you can't read on Wikipedia, which is the experiential knowledge, and that feeling of of witnessing something and being a part of it. And that inspired many people around that campfire to go, wow, I didn't even know this was happening, which is, was my initial reaction. and And I think What's been amazing for me is how many people who live in Melbourne who don't even know this is happening, and we've inspired them to learn more about it, to get involved, and actually do something. That was a that was a, a turning point for me that night.
4: I think we, you know, um, yes, as you may have heard from our accents, Jack and I are not from here, so we have the kind of perspective of arriving here and seeing this incredible natural world just a couple of hours outside of uh, Melbourne. And with the other people in the organisation, we have, you know, who, who are like born Mulburnians. When we have these events, it's just it's a great moment to kind of share knowledge, as Jack said, and just go and have that special moment around the campfire and just be with people who are really like you and really curious about science and the natural world. And you'll definitely kind of come along and, and learn something fantastic.
3: I also just wanted to thank the Royal Society of Victoria for their support. They read a blog that I wrote and they reached out to me and said, what you're doing is fantastic, how can we support? So we are now under the auspices of the Royal Society of Victoria, which gives us things like public liability insurance and and means that we can start fundraising. And that kind of practical support offered by the Royal Society of Victoria has been absolutely invaluable. It's turned us from a Facebook group of dedicated volunteers into an organisation that can start to have a, a real long-term impact.
2: Well thank you both so much for coming on Lost in Science today and um, just a bit more information about the crowdfunding campaign that you are going to be running soon?
3: That's right. So we're aiming to launch it on the 19th of July so before that we're going to need some help from people who can get ready to share uh, all the posts and then when we are ready to share it it will be going live and you can go to scienceforall.world for more information or check out our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram accounts. And I should say any dollar you raise um, or any dollar you donate will be matched by the Victorian state government as well, which is fantastic. So um, it really is a a great investment.
2: Pauline Jack from Campfires in Science and Science for All, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Science today. And anyone who wants to get involved, check out Twitter or Facebook and search Campfires in Science. Thanks again. Thanks very much, Claire. And hopefully we'll
3: see a few of you around the campfire.
0: And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. I think we've all learned something today, haven't we, Stu? Uh, yes. Thank you for that vote of confidence, Claire.
2: <laughs> and thank you very much to Jack and Pauline for coming in the studio and talking campfires and science. We're very um, very much looking forward to hearing um, more about their crowdfunding. And, um, and yeah, hopefully I'll catch up with them later in the year, maybe even on a camp trip.
0: How can people support their Crown Fund if they're so interested?
2: Um, so it's it's uh, opening up on the 19th of July, but they can have a look on, uh, follow them on Facebook at Campfires and Science or on Twitter at Campfires and Science.
0: Nice. Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. Please... Email us. <laughs> yeah, we are lonely, like like a Martian rover lost <laughs> in, the, in the dust, in yeah, the red dust. Yeah,
2: we're really lonely, like a sarcastic Mars rover.
0: Yeah. Um, please email us and tell us what you think. Um, we are at lostinsci at gmail.com. If email is not your bag, you can uh, find us on Facebook, or you can message us, or you can just like us or follow us. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. That's our handle, I believe they call it. Um, you can find us on your podcast uh, service. If you find us on the iTunes or Apple podcast store, please give us a good rating and review because that lists our ranking in search results and makes other people find us and everyone everyone benefits apart from those people who push down the rankings. Um, or you can just listen to us on the radio where at the same time, every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in
1: Science.